Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. And I'm Terry Moran, ABC's senior national correspondent. And Terry, we are sitting here on Wednesday, uh, less than 24 hours away from one of the most anticipated moments of the Trump presidency, maybe one of the most anticipated moments in modern political history, the day where Judge Brett Kavanaugh will face down one of his accusers, uh, Christine Blasey Ford, uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee, the Supreme Court hanging in the balance. Uh, And Terry, you've been here before. You've been covering a lot of these. Uh, There are a lot of memories and echoes of 1991 and Clarence Thomas. Thomas, uh, what what do you see as the stakes coming into tomorrow? Well, the court, obviously. But then there's something that uh, the Anita Hill-Clarence Thomas hearings showed as well. And Anita Hill said it on Good Morning America the other day. This moment changes the trajectory of two lives. You know, we're going to get to the politics of it. This is a politics powerhouse podcast. But spare a moment for a little bit of sympathy for these two individuals. Their lives will never be the same. Uh, and they have to go forward in trying to remember what happened 35 years ago between them in front of the country, skeptical questioners on both sides, and that's at stake. But more uh, more to the point of this podcast, uh, it's not just the Supreme Court. It, it, it could be the Republican majority, uh, depending on how this is handled. And the fact that there are more accusers coming out makes it even more uncomfortable for Republicans. And the, and the trajectory of the Trump presidency. All three branches of government, in a sense, uh, on trial, uh, under the microscope, a lot to be determined. And we want to unpack all of that today. But first, we want to start with the news, because just this morning, Michael Avenatti, who's been teasing a big announcement on Twitter, um, appears to have delivered on what he promised. And he has an affidavit that's been submitted to the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, that has detailed allegations from a new woman, a woman we hadn't heard from before named Julie Swetnick, who talks about uh, multiple incidents uh, in, in, involving Brett Kavanaugh and his friend Mark Judge. Uh, take a listen to Michael Avenatti, also known as the, the lawyer for Stormy Daniels, of course, on The View this morning. The attempts to uh, drug uh, women by placing uh, grain alcohol and or drugs in uh, basically the punch of these parties uh, that many of these women ended up gang raped, unfortunately. I mean, the details in this declaration are specific. Uh, they are shocking. Uh, but above all else, they are true. Terry Moran, we are now talking about gang rape. Yeah. And, and there is a couple things about this. First, Julie Swetnick was in the same social circle. She describes, she says she attended about 10 parties over a couple of years with Brett Kavanaugh and his friend Mark Judge, uh, who actually Christine Blasey Ford alleges was in the room when she was allegedly assaulted by Kavanaugh, Judge inciting Kavanaugh on allegedly. And Julie Swetnick says uh, she knew these guys. And she knew them at these apparently wild parties that were going on in the D.C. suburbs in the uh, early 1980s, where they were, she said, she observed them spiking the punch, targeting vulnerable uh, young women, teenage girls, if you will, and and then uh, taking them into a room. And she would she alleged that there were gang rapes going on, boy, uh, young men waiting outside the closed door of the room to take their turn. And she finally alleges she was one of them. Yeah, yeah, it's it's written to me in in a in a slightly of a very careful way, I should say, yeah, where it leaves unclear whether Kavanaugh was in fact one of the attackers. Uh, at least the, my reading of it for her particularly, she talks about that cultural generally. But it is a, a stunning allegation that comes on the heels 
of the initial allegation from Christine Blasey Ford of, a, of an attempted sexual assault, uh, where she said she even feared for her life at one point. The accounts in The New Yorker, uh, d- dating from the, the time that he spent at Yale. And, and Terry, I think one question that emerges to my mind, and a lot of Republicans I've been talking to have raised this point, that suddenly this man went, in the course of all of this public vetting, he went from being a Boy Scout, uh, from being a, a, a prep boy nerd, to being an alleged gang rapist mm. in the space of, what, 10 days or so. Uh, wh- what do you make of how this turn and the timing of this turn that all comes after the confirmation hearing? Well, it's the intersection, as the Clarence Thomas Anita Hill hearings were, of the deeply personal and the highly partisan political. Uh, that's what we've got. Democrats want anything to beat this guy. They did a very poor job on the merits uh, in the hearings, trying to find some ground to get people to vote against him and oppose him. And now they have an exploration of his life as a teenager. And the answer to the question, how could this have happened? Well, there's only two, there's only two answers, really. One, it didn't. Or two, there's a very deep, dark, buried black box in his life that he has shut down a long time ago and covered it up with a, with a very devout and uh, apparently exemplary adult life. I guess that's possible. <clears throat> One of the things that is common in both of those, and Kavanaugh acknowledges it, drinking. The yeah. one thing that eyewitnesses confirm, whatever they have to say about his intimate behavior, is in those years, he drank a great deal. And, and another thing that's extraordinary about this week, Terry, as you know, is that uh, for the first time in, in history that we know of, a Supreme Court nominee has done an interview to try to rebut this in advance of additional public testimony. Uh, it was on Fox News, so, uh, of course, a, a friendlier outlet than, than most. But, but take a listen to Judge Kavanaugh. And we should note this was specifically his response to the New Yorker allegation that dated from his time at Yale. The women I knew in college and the men I knew in college says it's inconceivable that I could have done such a thing. And the New York Times has reported that just last week, the person making the accusation was calling other classmates saying she was not sure that I had done this. So that gets to your point about the about the compartmentalization of his life, perhaps the black box of it. Uh, what, what do you make of the way that Kavanaugh himself has pushed back on this? We th- This has been a strange 10 days to my mind because the initial allegation came out and then another one comes out a week later and now a third. But we still... We, we haven't had a, a full public accounting from the first uh, uh, allegation yet. That, that, that's going to happen tomorrow, the Senate Judiciary Committee. But Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh has pushed back in the interim. He has. And I, I think he was in a terrible position, I think, from his perspective. What's he supposed to do? How do you prove a negative? How do you prove that 36 years ago, 35 years ago, you weren't in a specific room at a party? Very, very difficult to prove that, especially when there is no direct corroborating contemporaneous evidence from Christine Blasey Ford. She told people over the past five or six years, but not for decades in between. That said, what if Kavanaugh had said, look, you know, uh, I don't remember doing this. I don't think I did it. It's nothing that I think I would do, but I know that I was a little out of control in high school. I was drinking a little bit too much. And if I did this to this person, Christine Blasey Ford, I'm I'm sorry, and it is terrible. It doesn't seem like something I would do. Instead, it became very quickly the position that the president has basically articulated, which is don't believe the women. Yes. And, and that is a political loser. And and I think that's an important 
point to make in all of this, and I think we talk about similarities and differences from 1991, the, the fact that we are in this Me Too era where there are other women who are coming forward and understand uh, or believe they understand where these women are coming, why they're coming forward decades after the fact, and in addition to that, a president who himself has stood accused of, uh, of sexual misconduct in the past and has has used this playbook. Take a listen to uh, how President Trump handled this when he was asked about it while in the, at the United Nations in New York. The Democrats are playing a con game, C-O-N, a con game. Is there anything? It's a shame. Is there and they know it's a con game. They know he's high quality. And they wink at each other. They're winking. They know it's a con game. So for this to be a con game, it, uh, it, suggests that Democrats are in cahoots in dropping these allegations. And it also suggests, I think it more than suggests, it, it outright says that these three women now are making it up. And the first part of that is kind of undeniable. The, the Democrats, uh, Diane Feinstein had these allegations, didn't share them with Democrats or Republicans. Uh, Christine Blasey Ford is being advised, among other people, by Ricky Seidman, who was, I remember, was a counselor to Anita Hill. She was on the uh, Ted Kennedy uh, staff, Senate staff. She worked in the Obama White House. She's a longtime Democratic operative, as are some of her other advisors. And uh, Deborah Ramirez shared her uh, allegations with Democratic staff first. And they didn't tell Republican staff. So you can understand why Republicans are saying, wait a minute, this is not about a search for the truth as as it is a weaponizing of these allegations. That's probably true. But they are there. And at this point, I don't see how you don't delay this hearing or or have another one. I don't think Kavanaugh wants to go through two in order to air out to at least take a look at this sworn affidavit from Julie Swetnick and delay means death for this nomination. And and President Trump knows that and, and has been already saying publicly that uh, they should have pushed forward on this a week ago, uh, regardless of the allegations. His feeling is that Republicans have been accommodating enough, given too much ground to Democrats. And that is the view among some Republicans. Unclear at this stage, though, whether they have the votes. And I think that's a that's a critical piece is that, on, that strategy only works if you can get that person confirmed. I think as of right now, they do not have the votes. A lot is riding on this hearing for a, only a relative handful of senators, but uh, but the critical senators. Well, and I wonder, and I want to ask you, Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, the majority leader of the Senate, has been saying for a week now, we're going to get this thing done. We're going to get it done fast. We're going to have a vote, you know, maybe by this weekend. We've got the votes. He's going to be on the court. I, at some point, I thought he doth protest too much. I, <laughs> you know, is he bluffing a little bit? doing his best to, A, fight the good fight for the conservative base, but recognizing, let's get this thing done one way or another, because if we need another nominee, we want that sooner, because in January, if we lose the Senate, and that's a big if, but if Democrats take the Senate, it's a different ballgame. Uh, that's precisely right. He, he is bluffing, but he's bluffing knowing that if he has called on that bluff, He's got another hand to play, which is a classic McConnell maneuver. What Mitch McConnell is thinking about here is maintaining that Senate majority and getting a confirmed nominee. Does he care about Brett Kavanaugh? A lot of people think Brett Kavanaugh wasn't even his first or second or fourth choice. He's fine with Brett Kavanaugh. would do the right thing. But what he really wants is to make sure that they have that conservative majority in Wisconsin, the Supreme Court. And he really wants is to make sure that his members have maximum political advantage uh, and, uh, and the Democrats are on the defensive, which brings us 
Terry, to the spectacle and the extraordinary event that we're expecting on Thursday. Uh, Echoes of 1991, the last time we had anything even remotely like this. And it does seem like the Republicans have learned or or sought to impose some of the lessons from that in the initial move that they made of, of hiring an outside counsel. Uh, the, Mitch McConnell somehow, in art, somewhat inartfully, though I think probably accurately, <laughs> is referring to her as a female assistant. Uh, but she's an accomplished, uh, uh, an accomplished uh, investigator and prosecutor out in Arizona who's going to come on and handle the questioning, basically conceding that Republican senators don't trust themselves in this setting. They are openly conceding it. That they uh, who, who was I think it was Bob Corker said, look, one of them says something wrong yeah. to Dr. Blasey Ford, and that's all we'll hear about. So. In a somewhat cynical and and self denigrating in a way a, a political ploy, they've hired Rachel Mitchell. But Rachel Mitchell is a serious person, and I'd like to say this is somebody who had to sit through the Anita Hill Clarence Thomas hearings and hear the wretched attempts by senators to get at with the facts. There, senators are terrible questioners on both sides. What they do is they give speeches and then they throw a softball or a gotcha. Based, written by their staff. They don't follow up. They don't understand how to plot a line of, in, of, of questioning. Trial lawyers are trained to think differently and to question differently. And, and, and what they want to do is elicit facts that they can use respectfully, sensitively, especially somebody with, with Rachel Mitchell's decades of experience in this area, to elicit facts that they can use in an argument for their case. So she's, she's an advocate. But what, the last thing I'd say is people find it very cynical and a political ploy, and it is. But Rachel Mitchell comes to this hearing room with a reputation and a career at stake as well. If she is seen to rough up Dr. Christine Blasey Ford, what victim would ever talk to her again? Mm. So I, I expect her to be very professional, and she's going to question Kavanaugh, too, and she knows how to do it. So she may be a little bit of a wild card for Republicans in this hearing. So you view this as having the potential, at least, to be a serious inquiry, as opposed to just the political spectacle that, 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 that you might expect from a very partisan panel. Yeah, if, I, if Rachel Mitchell gets to do her job, which she's spent decades doing, won awards to do, yes. The problem is that a serious inquiry would also include other witnesses mm-hmm. uh, and probably a background. One of the things she's at a disadvantage uh, in, she's a prosecutor, and every time she's questioned witnesses, she will have all, already talked to the detectives who did the investigation. That would be the FBI in this case. And they didn't do an investigation. So she's flying blind a little bit when she questions uh, Christine Blasey Ford or Brett Kavanaugh. And the politics, of course, will be everywhere. You have, as we mentioned, the swing seat on the Supreme Court. You have the potential for this to throw control of Congress into disarray in just a few short weeks before the midterms. We have the credibility of the president. You have several 2020 contenders who are part of this committee, both on the Democrat and Republican side, who will have an opportunity to shine. One thing that that strikes me, Terry, and you were in the room for much of this in 1991, is that in the memories of that hearing, Nobody looks good. None of those senators, none of the senators look good. In fact, a lot of the harshest questioning that's come among Democrats recently has been what Joe Biden's role was in all of that. Back in 1991, as the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, putting Anita Hill through that, uh, his very explicit rounds of questioning. Uh, Is it your sense that this has the potential to be that kind of defining moment for this generation of of members of the Senate Judiciary Committee? That's a great point. I, I, I think it does because senators aren't good at this. They aren't trained to do this. They make speeches. They make laws. They try to shape the national debate. They they fight it out with each other over how to get that debate in their direction. 
but it's an inquiry which is which is rigorous and which can at least surface something that we can call facts. They aren't very good at that, and and I think their tendency to speechify, their tendency to score political points, with a couple of exceptions. Kamala Harris is a good questioner, mm. although she kind of stuck her neck out with Kavanaugh about did you. Did you ever talk about uh, the Mueller probe to a member of President Trump's former a lawyer's uh, former lawyer's law firm? Uh, and she never delivered on whether or not that ever happened. But she clearly can a- ask a, a question properly. So can Sheldon Whitehouse. But for the most part, all of them are up there with different goals than a trial lawyer has or an investigator has. What happened here? Thereafter, how can I get what happened here to advantage me and my, my side? Mm-hmm. Which is a very different thing. And, and is it your sense that anything around the Senate's ability to get at those get at those questions has changed in the intervening 27 years? No, no. In fact, I, look, I, when I see uh, Chairman Grassley here, OK, so Chairman Biden got in a lot of trouble for the way he handled Anita Hill. Uh, I, he was in a difficult position and he was as clueless, frankly, as, as the rest of the country about the issue of sexual harassment and has been atoning for it in some ways ever since. Uh, Grassley uh, was on that committee. Right. It was, he's been in the Senate that long. He's 85 years old. Uh, and yet I do feel I don't know if you do that. The sense of Grassley. Yes, he's a partisan. Yes, he's trying to get Kavanaugh confirmed. But I also feel for somebody who's been around the Senate that long, he knows the Senate is going to be around longer than him or Brett mm-hmm. Kavanaugh or any of this controversy. And he's a little bit of an institutionalist. Yeah, in other words, I don't think he's done the president's bidding here. Uh, and I, I think it's quite possible we'll get a delay in the hearings because I, I think while he's not an advocate for a neutral inquiry by any means, I think he's got the credibility of the committee and his role as chairman and the Senate more broadly in his mind as well. Not I don't want to overstate that, but I think I, I think he's doing a little bit good for the country here as he as he approaches this. Now, he's declining an FBI investigation, so, you know, he can take the gloves off plenty. But. I, there's some ray of hope in the way Grassley's been handling himself. And, and yeah, there's so much mistrust surrounding this process. And to me, it, it, you can you have to rewind the tape back to Robert Bork, if not before then, to get to the roots of this. And you and you ro- draw that line through Clarence Thomas and then all the way through Merrick Garland and the failure to even get a hearing on President Obama's final uh, appointment to the Supreme Court in Garland and, and bring you to this moment where it is a purely partisan exercise. And I do think it's extraordinary and worth pointing out, Terry, that for all that the, the nation seems uh, engaged in this in this question, there are easily 90 and perhaps 95 United States senators that right now, before hearing a word from Christine Blasey Ford, know how they're going to vote on this nomination uh, if and when it comes to the floor. This is a universe of about five men and women, uh, a couple of them Democrats, a couple of them Republicans. They are the vanishing, if not totally vanished, middle of the Senate, uh, and they control whether Brett Kavanaugh gets this lifetime appointment on the Supreme Court, and they control how history judges this extraordinary moment. That's a great point, Rick. I'm actually old enough to have covered the Bork nomination (laughs) as well. And in that one, you know, there were probably 20 or 30 senators. We we were all waiting on a lot of the Southern Democrats. There used to be Southern Democrats back in the day and and, and Western Democrats, somebody like Dennis DeConcini. And, you know, which way were they going to go? And you didn't know. But you're right. This is such a narrow narrow middle in the country as well. Although, actually, our, our colleague Mary Alice Parks uh, raised a poll that, that shows about a third of the country hasn't made up its mind. My concern is that when they see the testimony, their mind will be made up from their partisan political perspective. Mm-hmm. The, the most depressing 
data that I've seen recently on that is this allegation of, of sexual misconduct against Keith Ellison, the vice chair of the DNC and running for attorney general in Minnesota. He's been accused by a former uh, partner of domestic abuse sort of recently. And, uh, and another woman has come forward as well. And uh, Minnesota and National Public Radio ran a poll that showed only 5% of Minnesota Democrats believe the woman, Karen Monahan is her name, and that can't be anything but don't do it to my guy. I mean, yeah. Bill Clinton is the most famous example of that. Sure. And, and to me, and, and it brings us, I think, to, our, to, to what we'll make our final, our final discussion point for today of President Trump. But to me, it is uh, an, an ultimate manifestation of the red versus blue, my team versus your team, and the way that politics has become that, that you could look at the same facts and come to that snap judgment and say, yes, I believe her or no, I, I don't believe her. I'm sure some of that is wrapped up in in the, the, the socioeconomics of what, uh, of what each party is made up of. And uh, there are certainly Democrats that look and act and have different backgrounds than Republicans. But a lot of it is based on that snap judgment you make because he or she is on my team versus the other team. Uh, and that does bring us to President Trump because he has lived that. He thrived on that sense. He rode to power on that sense of us versus them. He continues to campaign in that way. And he has conducted his campaign, and this is a campaign, for Brett Kavanaugh to sit on the Supreme Court based on that notion that he has of deny, 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 of uh, of setting this up as the Democrats are out to get uh, the Republicans and we can't fold. And, and he has imposed whether whether or not it was going to happen in this case. That is the, those are the stakes going into Thursday. And and he is Rick. This polarized his genius is for polarization in some ways. He goes for the jugular and get people gets people riled up. And in that world that you've just described. Brett Kavanaugh is a bit of an outlier. Yes, he's on the red team, if you will. But he is, a, he is well, I guess he's uh, from the elite establishment, East Coast. Uh, you can't get more uh, establishment than Brett Kavanaugh. And uh, my grandfather actually worked for the uh, Chicago P- Democratic political machine. He was in the Park District. I'm not sure he ever went to any parks, but uh, he, was, <laughs> he, he did that for years. And they had a saying uh, that when somebody walked into a meeting that they didn't know, they said, who sent you? Because we don't want nobody nobody sent. Mm. And there's a question, you know, obviously Brett Kavanaugh's worked in the, in the fields of Republican law, conservative law for a long time, but he's not a Trumpy conservative, right? Uh, and I had heard that President Trump had told his, look, this is the guy you wanted me to pick when this controversy began. Go ahead, get him through. But if you can't, I'm going to pick the one I wanted, mm. which is Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, a woman who was attacked basically by Senator Dianne Feinstein for, uh, as Feinstein said, you know, I feel that the dogma, the Catholic dogma is strong in you. And that lit up the Christian right for her. People fight for people that are on their team. And I think Kavanaugh, uh, who has lived, a, a, you know, obviously a conservative Republican life, but doesn't have that vibe uh, that, that, that Trump likes so much. And, and we'll see. If it hurts him or not. And it's such an, that's such an interesting twist on all of this because it is very plausible to my mind to see uh, Judge Kavanaugh nominated by a President Jeb Bush or a President Marco Rubio. Uh, it's a very conventional, in a lot of ways, choice. Uh, and, and, and whether this actually results in his withdrawal and the, 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 uh, a more Trumpy choice uh, as a result would be, would be quite a, an ironic outcome for the Democrats who have put so much in the line in fighting this nomination. Yes, Kavanaugh's a, a, a judge. They all are, and they're all uh, well-qualified, apparently. But there, 
one has the sense that Amy Coney Barrett or, or somebody more in, in that end of the business might be readier to just flat overturn Roe versus Wade than someone who's more of an institutionalist. I mean, Kavanaugh is a very conservative judge, and he's been running for the Supreme Court, it seems to me, from the court, his appellate court for a long time, sending the right signals that he would do the right things as far as conservative jurisprudence is concerned. But I don't think he's a radical. And you might get a radical. We might get any sort of outcome <laughs> out of this next uh, this next couple of news cycles. Uh, Terry Moran, thank you for being here. I know it's been a busy week, and you'll be back at it and in the hearing room on, on Thursday for what is going to be an, an absolutely fascinating day. Thanks, Rick. Uh, that does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. We will be back, um, I'm guessing, later in the week with a special edition. Uh, John Carl is on his way up to New York for a presidential news conference even this afternoon. So, again, our thanks to Terry. Thanks to the whole team, uh, Avery Miller, Angie Yak, and back in the control room, our man Trevor Hastings. We'll see you next time. Thanks.